This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, July 7th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And Eric Estrada, he has one of those names like Vin Scully, names that blend into each other. Eric Estrada? Eric Estrada has joined the actual police. The former star of Chips was sworn in as a reserve officer in St. Anthony, Idaho over the weekend. Let's hope they don't go through all their regular officers and have to rely on the former star of Chips. St. Anthony, by the way, I looked this up, the patron saint of amputees, swine herds, and travel hostesses, among other things. Chips, of course, ran from 1978 to 1983. I say, of course, if you were alive and paying attention to the TV in that time, but afterwards, you're like, what the hell was Chips? I'm telling you what it was. It was this culturally ascendant TV show about the California Highway Patrol, and there was Eric Estrada as Ponch in chips. But you know, TV actors taking their characters' jobs on in real life, it must happen more than you think. For instance, Norman Fell, successful actor, quite likely he had broad real estate holdings, making him a landlord. And remember, he was the landlord not just in Three's Company, but also The Graduate. That actually happened. And Conrad Bain's success on the screen, that allowed him to buy a swank duplex on Park Avenue. And you actually would not like it. When Bill Bixby got mad, I can imagine that Haywood Nelson and Fred Berry certainly looked around them in the heady days of 1979, 1980 and asked themselves, what's happening? Gavin McLeod loved boats and Fred Grandy from Love Boat was a member of the 103rd Congress, which actually approved the extension of the Marine Mammal Protection Act, Marine Love Boat and remember who Fred Grandy played, Gopher a mammal. But the one that really should have happened, the one that would have been awesome, is Sorrel Book. Do you remember Sorrel Book? You probably remember the character he played, Boss Hogg, on the Dukes of Hazard, and had Sorrel Book become an actual Southern sheriff. There is reason to think that whatever town that was would have benefited from Sorrel Book's talents. Let me tell you about Sorrel Book. He was fluent in five languages. He earned degrees from Columbia and Yale, and he served in the United States Army during the Korean War in counterintelligence. I would think most Southern towns would benefit from having the real-life boss hog bossing them around. And coming up next week, why Alf actually did go on to eat a cat. On the show today, I spiel about the FBI director's hearings. It's a five-minute spiel after five hours of hearings. I am here to help you. But first, it's Jay Bradford Hips, author, southerner, former IT consultant. 
it's a little more fascinating than it sounds. The Adventurist, a new novel by J. Bradford Hips, centers on a guy named Henry. He works in an office. Nah, not that happy with it, but he likes making money. You know what? It's a little deeper than that. J. Bradford Hips is a first-time novelist. This is a funny, I don't know, I don't want to use the phrase well-observed. Isn't that one of those phrases that seems like a compliment, but has it ever really driven anyone to read a book? This is a book that deserves being paid attention to. Hey, Brad, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you wrote a book about a businessman, and uh, you yourself are, were, what's your state, what's your uh, current status as uh, card-carrying yes. member of the businessman community? I, I guess I, I still retain my card. I, I do have a day job like like most writers. I guess unlike most writers, mine happens to take place in an in office and, and deals with, with software, but but I do I do still still float and, and operate in that world. And what helps you more? Does uh having the outlet of being a creative writer help you with your job? Or does doing your job I mean in this case doing the job gave you so much fodder for the book? Certainly what you discover and, and one of the things that, that informed this book is the fact that these spaces, these office spaces that, that many of us spend a good deal of time in are actually fairly riddled with, with human drama. And that's not always negative drama. Sometimes it is. But obviously, these are also places where we absolutely build lasting friendships. We work with people we respect. You know, we meet intelligent folks who do things that may inspire us. And then you have the downside. You, you certainly encounter, you know, underhandedness and betrayal and, and these kinds of things. And I think if you're a, a writer, you begin to tune into just how dramatically rich that environment is. And I suppose if there's any mild irony, it's that I think by and large, our literature has sort of passed by that opportunity. There just aren't many works of, of fiction, I guess, of, of what I would pretentiously call serious fiction that have paid much attention to the degree that I think, you know, the, the sort of the modern workspace has been observed. It's largely been observed satirically, yes. uh, which, of course, has a, a very coarsening, flattening effect to these environments that actually we, we spend a lot of time in. Um, so anyway, to a large degree, this was one of the things that that interests me in, in, in trying to explore and unpack a little bit in this, in this novel. Yes, there is a legitimacy to the workplace. I mean, this may be a Marxist view. I just don't see that, you know, the worker is enslaved and it's so terrible going into the office. And these are jobs that, you know, on the one hand, on the campaign trail, people are talking about jobs going away and even good factory jobs are, oh my God, what about office jobs? All right, now that we have them, they're just things of mockery. They're just things that all they can do is cost you your soul. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it, there is sufficient complexity, and I would argue in almost any office, that it becomes fictionally rich territory. I, I said somewhere else, and I, 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 only, I only mean this as half hyperbole, uh, you know, I think after the battlefield, the office is one of the richest theaters for kind of human drama and hu human interaction. And I suppose you could say, like a battlefield, you are going to see <laughs> acts that are laudable and heroic and interesting, and and you're also going to see some pretty nasty behaviors. And anyway, trying to get all of that onto the page was was something that that interested me, and doing it in a way that did not, as as you're suggesting, sort of take I guess what you might say is sort of the the, the knee jerk Marxist 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and just in terms of plot, in terms of how to construct a story, sure. Let's think of the two greatest dramatists who ever wrote in the West. All right. Chekhov and Shakespeare. Shakespeare larded his plays with princes and battles and elements that were inherently dramatic, star-crossed lovers. But Chekhov's were, you know, people at a summer home, you know, an uncle and his right. uh, family, extended family. So you can get a lot of drama if you're a good dramatist out of a situation where there isn't someone who is necessarily going to die or a situation where as soon as I give you what in Hollywood is called the high concept pitch, you could still wring a lot of drama out of that. Yeah, that's right. And I, you know, I think the other, the other thing that is, that interests me in, in at least the books I'm drawn to and, and the writers I admire, you, you get the sense that the writer is putting a lot of his or her own consciousness into the work and essentially is doing their best to give an authentic rendering of what it's like to be a human being under these circumstances, you know, in early, in this case, in early 21st century America, and also confronting the fact, if you take the longer view, that we're mortal beings confronting all these kinds of things. So I've always been drawn to these stories where there is the, I guess what you might call uh, the traditional drama in, in this particular book, in The Adventurist, it, it tends to manifest around a, a somewhat underhanded coworker and a love story. But I've also been drawn to these stories where a huge amount of it is just the interiority of the character uh, himself and the way he's trying to make his way and make meaning in the world. Those are very different kinds of books. Those are certainly the existentialist novelists were after this. Uh, you know, Nicholson Baker is fantastic at this. Uh, there, there's, there's a long kind of tradition of books that do that as well. So in my case, and this is a little bit the naivety of the first-time writer, I thought, wouldn't it be great to try to put the two together. Now we can debate the success, but, but anyway, that was the aim. And in, in uh, finding out about your character, Henry, and about his family and about his, uh, his take on his co-workers, you know, your observations are seen through his eyes. And it occurred to me as I'm reading the book, you know, Brad didn't write this book because he was so intent on a plot. He loves writing. He's, he has a facility with the language. He had observations. I mean, there, there is so much that's well observed. And there's a lot of sociology going on and a lot of just a twisting, a description of a normal setting, analogizing it to a zoological phenomenon or something like that, where I said, these are just, at the very least, a series of well-crafted observations. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that that is that is uh, one of the things. At least I hope that's right. Is probably how I should answer that question. But but I I, I, <laughs> I give myself four stars. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but but I do agree with this idea that what I think can be arresting for me, and you, you could sort of think of famous examples of this, but are simply books where you're simply fascinated to understand what the consciousness of the book is going to observe next and how they're going to observe it, and that in and of itself not necessarily for an entire book, but certainly for scenes or several pages is enough to keep you going. I do think there is, again, speaking for myself, there is a, a genuine inherent fascination in the mind trying to work itself out and trying to understand, you know, its place in, in history and time and what that means. That sounds grandiose, but it is what we do day in and day out. And by the way, we do it when we show up at the office and sit down and switch on the computers and grab mm -hmm. coffee and have a conversation with coworkers. We're, we're, we're sort of never not 
somewhere in in the backs of our minds, sorting some of that out, making these judgments, having these perceptions, everything else. So even I think in in spaces that we might otherwise dismiss as being inherently banal or flattened. Uh, the mind itself is a, is a highly active, highly attuned radar that's always roving. That can be interesting, at least if you're able to cast it in a way that, that somebody might want to pay attention and listen. Right up top in The Adventurist, you quote Walker Percy's The Movie Goer. But I wanted to ask you about texts, and they don't have to be books that are great office observations. So here's some of my list. A couple recent ones. Max Barry Company. Don't know if you ever read that. It's, uh, no. it's very negative on the role of the company and very soulless, but extremely funny. Then we came to an end by Joshua Ferris, sure. Joshua Ferris, which is, I think, written in the second person, the only novel I've ever read that's written in the second person. But uh, writers on The Office have told me that they read that book to try to get little workplace snippets. I would also put the TV show Mad Men in that category, not just advertising, yeah. but office and workplace dynamic, excellent. And then there was, I don't know if you ever saw, there was a movie starring William Holden called Executive Suite, which isn't you know necessarily an anti-business. It, was, it just kind of took the premise that this businessman wants to do well by his family and his business, and it was really interesting and, and well-observed. And I never read the source material, which was a novel by Cameron Hawley, but apparently this guy named Cameron Hawley um, is from North Dakota. And for 24 years, I found that on his Wikipedia page, he worked as an executive at the Armstrong Cork Company. So I don't know if you've, uh, wow. you know, any of those those texts or what else would you add to that list? I, you know, the one, one that comes to mind, The Mezzanine, I mentioned Nicholson Baker. It was Nicholson Baker's first book. You know, The Mezzanine is, a, is a really just a terrific, terrific, terrific terrific novel, but its sum total is a, an office worker uh, breaks a shoelace and, and goes to get it repaired over lunch. That That is essentially the plot, but it is a you know superbly brilliant, hilarious rendering of this particular worker's observations as he goes about undertaking this. Certainly, if you know Nicholson Baker, you know he's a past master at this. Um, it's interesting, actually, you mentioned the moviegoer because, obviously, that book is tremendously influential and, and hence the reason for the epigraph. I never think of it as being a quote-unquote office book, no. um, but it is absolutely true. Banks Balling is a, is a stockbroker, and, and Walker Percy does a terrific job of casting some of the scenes kind of just in that, in, in that office setting, that kind of single stockbroker setting between Banks and, Banks and his secretary. And how important is it, I would gather that it's pretty important, it imbued a lot of the book that the office was this southern office, this new southern city. Um, you're in Houston. I lived in Atlanta. I'm like, yep, he got it. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I suppose the, the easy answer is you write what you know. I don't mean this. Uh, I, I mean this to be more maybe objective than it sounds. I don't mean to be judgmental, but there's a sort of a quality of sameness, I think, among these Sunbelt cities that, for reasons that are a little inchoate to me, became important for the story, I guess. For some reason, that felt important. There's sort of a, a polish and a newness and a shininess and also a, you know, a flatness that that effect felt like the right background for this. What do you think of the writer who says he can't or she can't balance work and art? He has, she has to quit a job. Maybe she lives in, you know some hipster enclave where she pursues or he pursues his writing and says, oh, I, can't, I can't do both of those at once. What's your take on that kind of person? Well, I think it's no matter how you 
sort of choose to, you know, make your way and make your living and make your art, it's always possible to be, you know, self-dramatizing. And I, I think, <laughs> you know, you've, you've, you've articulated well a certain self-dramatic soul that, that decides that, you know, the only thing that's possible is, is the environment that is art and nothing else. Candidly, if I'm honest with myself, it's possible for me to be self-dramatic about how I martyr myself daily by, you know, working this job so I can pay the mortgage and, and hopefully fund my children's education. And yet at core, what I want to do is write and what I am as a writer. So I think the short answer is we can all self-dramatize. The, the, the longer answer is writers emerge and are successful from all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of experiences. I think it's important for writers to be in areas that are uncomfortable or that naturally maybe engender friction. I think if you've created a life such that it is perfectly frictionless and everyone around you shares the opinions you share, then essentially what you're saying is you've, you've put yourself into an echo chamber and it's really hard to create interesting work, I think, in an echo chamber. So I want to get this right, though. The non-writing aspect of your life, are you a coder, a software engineer? Not anymore. That's yeah. where I started my life. I lost my credentials to be a developer long ago, although I really liked that world, uh, as, as surprising as that may sound since I was an English major. Software development is as creative an undertaking as a lot of things that get done in the arts. I mean, I think when you when you encounter smart software developer folks, you, you realize they're far more creative than they are algorithmic. So that part of that world is is uh, attracts me. So you are you a full time novelist now? No, I I still clock a day job, and uh, I think I will for quite some time. I mean, unless this, this podcast gives me a bump, I can't imagine, Mike. Um, but, but I, I think, I think maybe if you for, figure for out a way to engineer the podcast to uh, reach five times as many people, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll work on maybe. that together. And did you want to go into the field you went into and keep the writing on the side because you thought it was impractical to be a writer, because you thought it was impossible just to be a writer? You know, I know you were a ma humanities major, but what was your conception of just being pure? artist, like right out of college? You know, I'm late as a writer, uh, is the truth of the matter. I, 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 was, I was well, almost all the way through my 20s before the idea of trying to write even occurred to me. Uh, it would have been my late 20s by that point. So you're whatever you are, almost 10 years into whatever career you've, you've sort of picked for yourself, which seemed to be a perfectly fine and suitable career for me. And so I think because I didn't actually become serious about writing until I was ultimately, I guess, in my early 30s, serious in the sense that I was going to set aside what I was doing and actually try to explore it full time for a period. That informs, I guess, ultimately the degree to which you'd say it's either all or nothing. Yes. And might I also say that your timing has been horrible in both in that your debut novel <laughs> is when the novel is dead and your tenure as a software engineer is like 10 years before everything got funded with a dot com and you made $10 billion. That's right. I've timed it exactly wrong on both fronts, uh, which which means I'll be working multiple jobs for the rest of my life. But, but it's so great for you. it's great for the art. <laughs> it's good for your art. That's right. That's right. One has to suffer. Jay Bradford Hip's new novel is The Adventurist. Thank you so much, Brad. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Heroism under pressure. In order for James Comey to charge Hillary Clinton with a crime, he'd have 
needed to see intent on her part. He did not see intent on her part, so no charges were brought. And with that, I have just told you everything that happened in the House Government Oversight Committee hearings today. There was not one question, there was not one supposition, there was not one insinuation or one assertion that changed hell, even nudged by a micron, that basic fact. No intent equals no charge. And Comey explained this all in a very detailed and unprecedented statement on Tuesday. But since this is Thursday, he needed to be called before the House Government Oversight Committee, where Republican Chair Jason Chaffetz was a hemming and a hawing and a sighing and a hand-wringing about why some people might see politics in his questioning. Political this and political that. Chaffetz kicked off the hearing with a lengthy statement asserting we need these hearings to shed light, to pursue truth to get questions answered, and to demystify. He said he was mystified. We're mystified and confused. And confused. He needed to demystify how all of this could happen. So after his opening statement, there was Elijah Cummings, the ranking Democrat, and he followed up with his own lengthy statement. But it would have been great had Cummings just had foregone that and said, yeah, I've heard your questions, Mr. Chairman, but I also listened to Mr. Comey's statement on Monday. Everything you asked was answered there. He couldn't charge because there was no intent. But Cummings didn't say that. The Democrats, one Democrat held up Colin Powell's memoir, which talked about his own use of non-state department email. And another Democrat read some of Donald Trump's statements to Comey. And Comey said, yeah, that really doesn't describe how my investigation went. And the Democrats generally played defense. The only time Comey's temper flared up was when Republican Congressman John Micah seemed to imply that favors were given to Hillary Clinton based on Bill Clinton's tarmac meeting with Attorney General Roberta Lynch. But the way that Micah got to this insinuation was really weird. Have you seen the uh, Broadway production Hamilton? Not yet. I'm, I'm hoping to. I haven't either, but I understand it won the choreography Tony Award. And then the congressman held up a chart which was printed on really small paper so you couldn't see what was going on on TV. And he laid out the apparent choreography, get it? between the Justice Department and the FBI and Bill Clinton. Comey declared that he resented that insinuation, but he could have said, Congressman, are you familiar with Next to Normal? I understand that it won the 2009 Tony for Best Orchestration. Also, it was about an insane person, and you've orchestrated a pretty weird charge against me in an attempt to score points. Oh, by the way, it also won for Best Original Score, and I might add, Mr. Congressman, it won one last Tony. And that was best performance by a leading actress in a musical for Alice Ripley. But director Comey did not mention Alice Ripley. He instead said this. It's very, very important that the, that the American people understand that there really are people that you pay for with your tax dollars who don't give a rip about Democrats or Republicans or this or that, who care about finding out what is true. Also not given today? The decision was made and the recommendation was made the way you would want it to be, by people who didn't give a hoot about politics. Though Hillary Clinton's actions were frustrating, dangerous, sloppy, incautious, and possibly harmful, they were not criminal because there was no intent. Are you bored with me saying that? Imagine a five-hour hearing. You need a few elements for prosecution. There needs to have been classified information exchange. The classified information had to have been handled negligently. And you need intent to do harm. This would be like having a hearing over a baseball play. You need a force at second. 
You need the fielder to hold on to the ball, and you need to step on the bag to call the guy out. Mr. Comey, the fielder had the ball. There was a force. Why wasn't the runner out? It's because you need to step on the bag. But he had the ball, Mr. Comey. There was a force play. Are you telling me there wasn't a force play? No, there was a force play. Are you telling me the fielder dropped the ball? No, he held on to the ball. So then how could there not be an out? Because he needed to step on the bag. But isn't there a double standard? I could cite several examples of regular players, not all-stars in the major leagues. I'm talking about minor leaguers, high school players, little leaguers, where there's a force and the fielder holds the ball. And in all those cases, the base runner is called out. Yet in this case, the runner wasn't out. How is that not a double standard? Uh, because the fielder didn't touch the base. Well, what do we tell our children? What do I tell my constituents? What do we tell the people in the coffee shop who want to know? You got a force. You got a held ball. What's going on here? I would say you should talk to them about stepping on the base. What about tagging the runner, Mr. Comey? That would have worked too, but that didn't happen in this situation. Aha, Mr. Comey. But isn't it true that the manager of the team dined with the commissioner of baseball last week? Yeah, but that doesn't change the fact that the fielder never touched the base. Are you saying there are no consequences that a batter can hit the ball softly to second? The batter knows that he needs to move the runner over, but he hits a soft little squibber, and all the fielder has to do is pick up the ball. He knows there is a force play. He doesn't drop the ball, and yet there are no consequences to that batter, to that runner. Shouldn't there be consequences? I don't know. I just know what constitutes an out call, and you need to touch the base. I'm still mystified. Now, let's go now to another congressional hearing. This is the congressional hearing of Bonnie Tyler into the question of why she has not yet found a hero. Miss Tyler, I'm mystified how you did not find a hero. Now, I've seen in your statement yesterday where you laid out what you needed for a hero. He's gotta be strong and he's gotta be fast and he's gotta be fresh from the fight. Right. But this hero we're talking about was strong. We have seen the bench press statistics and his time in the 40s impeccable. So what's the problem? He's strong and fast. What else do you need? Okay, he's never been to battle, but what about his strength and his speed? I am mystified. I yell to you, my fellow representative. Well, as I look into the statute, there is an alternative set of criteria, Ms. Tyler, as you yourself quote here from the law. But your own investigation revealed that he was sure and soon. So isn't that enough to deem him a hero? Well, I mean, that's kind of subjective. No one comes out and says, I'm larger than life. Indeed, the kind of person who would say, I'm larger than life is probably smaller than life. But what about the sure and soon part, Miss Tyler? What about that, Miss Tyler? Well, listen, Miss Tyler, I don't really know that we've gotten anywhere today. I don't think the American people really understand that a sure and soon hero who also has been shown to be clearly strong and demonstrably fast can't be deemed by you to be a hero. There is a certain recklessness with the truth and a footlooseness with the facts. It is a total subversion of the American justice system and, quite frankly, a total eclipse of the heart. This meeting is adjourned.
And that's it for today's show. So where's the streetwise Hercules to fight the rising odds? Her name is Mary Wilson, and she produces the gist. Isn't there a white knight upon a fiery steed? In a matter of speaking, if you consider Steve Lichtai a knight and the position executive producer of Slate Podcasts a steed. Up where the mountains meet the heaven above, out where the lightning splits the sea, I would swear there's someone somewhere watching me. It is. His name is Andy Bowers. He's chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The gist... We're racing on the thunder and rising with the heat. We're going to take a Superman to sweep me off my feet. Oopru, depru, du peru, and thanks for listening.